Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Force podcast. My name is Captain Richard Byrne, and I'd like to welcome you to our special podcast series In Conversation with the Irish Air Corps. This series was produced by the Defence Force Public Relations Branch and the Irish Air Corps Public Relations team. A special thanks to Corporal Michael Whelan, the curator of the Irish Air Corps Museum, and Noel Grothier for editing and producing the oral history recordings. Show bands, air shows and Hollywood movies. A life in the Irish Air Corps is certainly a life less ordinary. In episode four, we hear about the variety that a career in the Irish Air Corps can offer. I've been to I've been to all the air shows again. The air shows were Arianta sponsored, and my dad oh, worked yeah. for Arianta as part. Arianta was his employer in the fire yeah. fire station out there, so he would always have a, a ticket for the car. So, um, I was going to the ones in Fairy House. Uh, I think eighty five was the one I, I kind of remember as the first one. Um, I was actually there the day um, that gentleman in the Wilga aircraft crashed. He stalled into the trees in Fairy House and was killed. Um, but again. 85 days I would have been seven years old so it really wouldn't have hit home to me exactly the severity of what happened at the yeah. time um, but then 86 was the, the year was here um, I have a picture of me taken from behind me with my bag of crisps to have you know 6p price tag on them a pack of potatoes back then and uh, just stuffing my face watching a, a vampire jet uh, screaming by like inside view see unmistakable view of a vampire um, and then it was here for 87 was the one that really got me um, I remember one of my favourite bits with the 87 air show was there were a lot of American hardware here um, and I remember getting a call from my dad who was in work and he just rang and said look there's a, there's four American aircraft taking off out of Dublin here because they were using the longer runways he says they're taking off out of here and they're heading over for a Baldana they should be overhead in about 30 seconds so sure enough we went out to the back garden up onto the shed for the best view and it was Apocalypse Now stuff. Uh, two F-15s and two A-10s in a nice box formation, screaming overhead straight to, towards Baal. So we legged it up to the field. Um, the F-15s were obviously just having a look at the place, scooted back to Dublin, but the A-10, one of them broke off and did its uh, its full practice. And it was just, you know, jaw on the floor stuff for me. Yeah. It's like, this is going to be great. And uh, that was the Saturday of the air show, which was on the Sunday. And I just remember driving into Baal and seeing the the Sally B, the B-17, uh, flying in formation with an A-10, yeah. and that was opening the show, and we had the Red Arrows, the, the Silver Swallows then that day as well, F-16s, everything, it was great. So, you, you re- do you reckon, during your early years, that you always had this thing in your head about becoming a pilot, military pilot? Like you? Ah, yeah, it was it was the only thing for me. The uh, one thing we didn't mention, uh, which was very much part of the scene here in the 1980s, was, and 90s was air shows, uh, which I was obviously very much involved in all that, and uh, uh, yeah, we were. I mean, ATC for, for us when we took it on initially, this was a big deal. We'd never done anything like this before, you know. And uh, uh, but it, it it worked reasonably well for us, and uh, but it, it was frantically busy for a couple of days. And the most satisfying air show that we ever had here was the one for the 75th anniversary of the Air Corps, yeah. which was an all-military show, and there were no civilians involved and everything went to clockwork. Yeah. ATC worked spot on on the day. So the last air show here was in 2000. I'm sure you were around for that one. And uh, that uh, was held on the warmest day of the year. I remember I was doing my leaving search. I saw from a, a school friend, uh, Alan White, came in 
uh, it was in the 2000 the year the air spectacular and uh, it was a Friday before it so that would have been 16th of June there was a rehearsal and there wasn't a cloud in the sky um, dad brought us in uh, left us up in the tower so there's a little uh, platform that, that encircles the tower yeah. left us up there and we were staring at the sky at the sun all day we didn't have any sunscreen we didn't have any hats nothing we were just watching the aircraft fly up and down the flight line all day um, and, then, uh, and then dad came to pick us up at, at the end of his day I think he was involved in the, the, the planning and operations um, for that air show and uh, he took one look at us and his jaw dropped we were burnt to well, crisp. Let me see now, uh, way back in 1936, after command of the Air Corps, Major Mulcahy decided we'd have a at home out in Baldonnell. Now, like a, an air show which had in the park later on, we had been touring with a sailplane in Baldonnell under the guidance of Company Sergeant Johnny Ma, who was one our terrific man in the engineering department of, of the Air Corps, and he became the head of engineering early in Aer Lingus afterwards. And under his guidance, they built a Bruno baby. She had a wingspan probably about 45 feet, I suppose a bit more. And she just held the one pilot. And we used to practice on a, a broomstick, really. That's what it was like, sort of a witch's yoke, you know. And we just got hauled off the ground a few feet just on this broomstick contraption and learned how to handle it that way. And then we got a motor car with a spool up in the rear of it and we put that down and raced down the airfield with that tied to the glider. First of all, we tried it to this practice yoke, and I went up to about 700 feet in that and frightened the life out of me. But we hauled off in the sailplane then, and it was really marvellous. Got up to about 800 feet, I suppose, with that. But with the air display coming off, I just thought this wasn't good enough. That when we're doing a show for the, the Irish people, we better put something, something worth looking at. So I went to the, the bus, and they said, do you mind if we work out a system that we can be towed off by an airplane? So he was a bit horrified, but he said, do you think you can work? And I said, well, have a go at it anyway. So I went up to South Johnny Ma, and I said, listen, Johnny, I think we've got permission to do an airplane tow. So I said, it would be great if we have. And I said, do you want these clips? If you get some clips off parachute harnesses, you can put a clip on the nose of the sailplane and a clip on the tailplane of the uh, of the airplane. So with a lot of ingenuity, which he had loads of, we produced this equipment. And Andy Woods was a pilot to Tommy and used the Vespa, which was a big, large, twin-planed airplane with about eight of them originally, and very many left at this time. But she got off the ground very smartly and quickly and was easy to control. And Andy was up flying, he was up in front there on the airfield, and I was sitting on the airplane with two fellas holding the wings up, keeping her level. I dropped my hand, and Andy opened the gun, and off we took. 
The initial start off was very exciting because I didn't expect what happened because the, air, the sailplane got off the ground in about 20 yards and nearly went off vertically. But pushing the control forward held and it was all right. The next thing the aircraft lifted after that was a piece of cake. We climbed up to about 1,800 feet, circling the airfield, and then I just pulled the lever and hooked, unhooked the glider. And after that, it was absolutely marvellous. Sailing around for the first time about 1,800 feet, no engine, no noise, and you could hear the sub dogs barking on the ground. It was really out of this world. It was a lovely evening. So I just sailed around for a while and came in and landed. So we had a few uh, practices at that. And the air display came, that was June 36, I think it was, the air display. It was hauled off anyway, and was at this stage able to do some loops and a few stall turns, which are rather terrific to look at on a sailplane, and twice as good if you run it. Came down and landed, much to the glorification of the crowd, thanks to God. But uh, it worked out splendidly, and it was a very auspicious and happy occasion for the, the workshop end of the aircon that produced this thing, Johnny Ma's baby, Bruno baby. And I was able to whoop in this and fly it out. This flew it. He flew it, of course, as well. Uh, I think I was the only one who's hauled off behind an aeroplane now. But uh, those were the days, and we got up to clouds, and we unhooked, and we used the clouds for lift and things like that, you know, just for practicing. And uh, that was it, and it was an awfully happy occasion. Those were the days. Life up camp was, was a lot different, because uh, everybody lived in in those days, so there was lots and lots of people, like several, maybe a thousand people living in in the camp wow. in those days. So sport was what you did after after hours, like uh, after after, uh, after after tea or whatever, uh, after after work. Uh, the, you know the the, the 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 area in the aerodrome, especially in the summertime, like the the, the Gaelic pitches, the soccer pitches, the hockey pitches, mm -hmm. the hurling. Sports was just a big thing in, in those days. That's all you could do. It was before television was was wide, yeah. widespread. Even though they had a a television in in the apprentice hostel. It could only pick up channels in a very fuzzy manner from the BBC and places okay. like that. So uh, you didn't watch telly unless there was something special on you wanted to watch, you know. You know. So what sport did you do or play? Well, I was a soccer player. You know, I, I, I even though I came from Waterford, which is a good hurling county, and I had gone to a hurling school, I, I had played soccer extensively in Waterford, and I was a reasonably good soccer player. And I played soccer in the Air Corps. And when I came up camp, uh, the, the group of us who, who were playing soccer, we decided to to um, form a soccer team, uh, to, to you know, to be playing in competitions out, outside the camp. Mm -hmm. And I was actually uh, I was actually appointed secretary of that of that group, the soccer club. It was the Air Corps soccer team, and I got the job of arranging. Uh, I was quite young, like 18. I got the job of arranging uh, for entry into a, into a, into an outside league, and I got in touch with the Leinster League people, and we we joined the G Leinster Junior League, okay. one division in the Leinster Junior League, and Air Corps soccer team became a member of the Leinster Junior League. So every Saturday we played. Uh, we had a home pitch in Baldonnell, and and we we played. We played um, uh, away matches in various parts of, of Dublin, you know, quite successfully, to the extent 
that a year later the Aircar won the Air, the All Army Soccer Championships for the mm. first time in living in living memory, yeah, which is stemmed out of our, uh, our 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 kind of a regular soccer team. Everything in the army was sport. sport. I mean, if you played football or whatever hurling, you were you were on the pig's back. I mean, it was just, it was fabulous like that. And I do remember one, I think it was an all-army final up the drum here. The Air Corps were playing the Curra, and again, Dermot Early was playing. And the Air Corps lost it that day. But um, the entire Air Corps then went to get the referee. And it was Jerry O'Connor came out from the sideline throwing the stick around a bit. <laughs> I'm not too sure whether he was going for the referee himself, but he cleared a space around the referee and got the referee off the pitch. That, that was the air court. They didn't, there was no way. <laughs> they let their feelings be known, but Early played a magnificent game that day. Um, a really magnificent game. And, and the air court at that time were no dolls, you know, there was county players on it then as well, you know, but it was really, and it was a tough match. There was no holes barred in it. Nobody was ever, ever sent off. It was never sent off in, in a, an All-Ireland or an All-Army match. But, uh, wow, they certainly earned a medal if they got it there. Yeah. We had an apprentice football team in the apprentice school. And uh, Jerry O'Connor came to watch a couple of matches in that. And Sunday out of the league. And, yeah, we had some good games. You know, we kept the young fellas in touch with football. But it was awkward because... You know, if you got a long weekend, you couldn't be asking a fella to stay behind in Dublin to play football, you know, so it was a bit awkward. But there was a, an apprentice team. Yeah. So every every Wednesday, the half-day Wednesday, and that was sport. So soccer, yeah. hurling, football, rugby. I think somebody tried to bring in rugby, not too successfully, but um, all that good thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, sports was a big thing. And uh, you mentioned sport and team there. Were you involved in the sport teams? In oh, yeah, yeah. Back, back then, like the apprentice team was 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 pretty good you know um but another thing we used to do was uh, um there used to be a, a kind of a civil service ga team in town in dublin and if we were on for the weekend and they had a game we'd end up playing with them under under an assumed name or that you know um because uh the kind of civil service team was always kind of uh, they'd have a different team out every week because it depended what nurse or doctor or train guy was was around the weekend to play for this team you know so so we'd go in and we played the odd time for them as well you know okay we needed funds you know to buy gear for the soccer for the soccer um for the soccer club to buy jerseys and and as i said we were competing in a pretty good league and i being a native of waterford had connections with a band called the Royal Show Band, which which was be we were entering the show band era in Waterford, uh, show band era in, in Ireland at the time, and I met the Royal Show Band, and I actually booked them on behalf of the uh, soccer club for a dance in the gym in Ballonnell. Mm. At that stage, it was possible to book the gym for dances for fundraising events, and I booked them about six months seven months ahead of the actual event itself, the dance itself. And by the time the dance, the time of the dance arrived, the Royal Showman were the biggest thing in the showman scene in Ireland, you know? So we were obviously onto a winner. We, we you know, members of the, of the soccer club obviously were, were acting as stewards and mm. trying to control the thing. But as we discovered, uh, the entrance to the gym for the night was at the 
the main the main gate was closed and the main entrance was was at the gym itself, you know, uh, from the road in, and that's where people gained entry. But as it turned out, hundreds and hundreds of people turned up to go to the Royal Showband. So we had a big job controlling the crowd to the extent that the gates had to be closed. And when they started climbing over the gates, mm. we had to get some military police involved and so on. It, it was, it was a, an extremely successful event. But the other spin-off was that because I had booked a band that night, I had an option on booking them for a second night, which was a kind of custom. Mm. Now, the first night, I think we we paid sixty pounds all money for the night. The next night was was on a percentage basis, sixty forty. They get sixty percent of the yeah. taking, and the club will get forty percent of the taking. So we booked them, yeah. and about six months later, we did it all again. Now we also had formed the first air Pipe band, and in nineteen sixty, the uh, Congo operation started and the 22nd, 32 Battalion, and there was other troops overseas elsewhere. But the commander of the 34th Battalion had no pipe band, and he asked our commanding officer, could he use the uh, co-pipe band? So volunteers then, we volunteered and we prepared, mm -hmm. and we became the air co-pipe band of the 34th Infantry Battalion in the Congo. And uh, some of the patrols, we just went with our band equipment and uh, when we'd visit the villages, we would entertain because at that time, the villagers were scared. Every time they heard somebody come into the village, they went out into the bush and the interpreter then would go and try and get the chief or the head, the head man. And eventually the people would come back into the village and we would play and calm them down and they all appreciated that. When I came back from the Congo, we got a great reception when we marched. We stopped the truck down the road and we marched up as a band, in through the gates and the whole camp were there to greet us and uh, oh, that was nice. Since you're talking about the show band, period, mm. do you want to talk about your own uh, show? Yeah, well, uh, again, I was an airman and I, I was working in, in, again, up camp during the daytime. But as I said, the show band scene was, 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 embarking in Ireland at uh, at the time and everybody was playing music or trying to play music and every place had a show band yeah. and I I I was I, I had learned to play the clarinet while I was an apprentice in the apprentice school. In fact, I had got permission to go to lessons. <laughs> I used to go into town once a week to get lessons. And and uh, there was another person in the camp who was Arthur O'Neill, who was a, a medic, was also learning the clarinet. So we used to sit down and play play together. And there was a couple. There was a, a couple of trumpet players in the camp. Uh, Archie Rayside being one of them, who was well known and. In, in O&E circles and uh, and uh, all those the people in the camp who could play musical instruments started to kind of mm -hmm. get together just just ad hoc and and playing start playing together so we had a we had a we had a two clarinet players we had a trumpet player we had we had a, a guitar player Miles Mooney who was um, played played the guitar and uh, we had no drummer. But we persuaded another person to learn the drums and join, join the group who was interested, Sean Kinsler, who was in the engine shop. So we ended up with the nucleus of, of instruments, you know, and started to start trying to play the, the, the pop tunes of the time, you know. Mm -hmm. And and 
uh, we got reasonably good at it, you know. We also recruited a singer in in uh, guy in the camp who was uh, who used to sing along with us, you know, and uh, and we were just playing for fun. It's one of the things you did after work, you know, and we did. But but it developed a bit more. Another person uh, in 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 the camp called Nobby O'Reilly, you know, wanted to become our manager. Mm-hmm. And he got a couple of bookings, engagements for us, you know. And we we played in a few scouts halls around around uh, around uh, Dublin, one in Donnybrook, I remember. Uh, we, we, we played in, at concerts. I remember playing in Ballyfermot on, on the stage in the cinema at a concert and playing at the stage in the cinema in Lucan at a concert, just doing, doing pieces, you know. Mm. But we, we developed and we were getting better all the time and we kind of tidied it up. You know, the two clarinet players became saxophone players, which was more in keeping. You know, I played the tenor sax and Arthur got an, got an, alto, an alto sax. Uh, we had a drummer. We had Archie. We had Archie as as the as the uh, as the trumpet player and Miles Mooney. And we got Ernie Birkenhire, who was uh, a corporal in Signals here, uh, became the bass player. Uh, uh, so we had we really had a full lineup at that stage. And again, we used to spend a lot of time practicing uh, around the camp someplace, maybe in the gym, maybe you know down in the dining room or wherever we could get into we into a hut. Uh, and we were just learning the pop tunes of the day, you know, and and getting better as we went as we, as we went along. Now we 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 started. Uh, we needed a name, so Miles Mooney, in fact, got the brain wave of calling it the Air Chords Show Band, not the Air Corps, the Air Chords Show Band. And the Air Corps Show Band was founded from that modest beginning, you know. Now this is again about 1959, and. We we uh, started, uh, Nobby, our manager, started to get engagements for us. And we played in Tala mm. in, in the hall and, and, you know, various ch- church halls and dances around Dublin, uh, St. Peter's and Fibsborough in, in, in various places like that. Not so much in, in the commercial halls, but in church halls. And uh, we were getting better all the time, playing on the weekends. And, you know, after the end of a year of this, we, we were st- we started to play in some of the commercial halls, and I just go on like we 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 took in another singer, an external singer, more of a more suitable guy who looked like Elvis Presley and sang, and we we started to travel. We every weekend during fifty nine, nineteen sixty, nineteen sixty one, nineteen sixty two, into nineteen sixty three, we were playing every every weekend. Uh, in some place, we, we we started to play in the north of Ireland extensively on Friday nights, Saturday nights, and Sunday nights. Travelling up, playing in marquees, playing in church in church halls, and then coming back to work here, uh, you know, on late on Sunday night and getting up to work for Monday morning, you know. But uh, it, it, the band became very popular. We had a we had a following. In May or June of sixty-five, the twentieth-century Fox took over Baldon and, uh, and quite a number of us were selected to work on that. Uh, we were seconded to the film company. I think I may have been selected because I was a sergeant in the engine shop and we had a very good scrap box and the film company had, I think they had six uh, tiger moths with 
gypsy major engines and, and, and aircraft of the type that we were used to. Uh, and um, I also at that stage had a had a license on the chipmunk engine, the, the gypsy major engine. So that may have been uh, part of the reason that I got seconded to the film company. And uh, we worked on the Blue Max for the whole of 65. Okay, so that was George Repaired and Ursula Andrews. George Repaired, Ursula Andrews. James Mason. James Mason, he was part of it. Uh, Prepared actually was a pilot. Uh, well, he had a PPL, but uh, he wasn't really a pilot. He, he did take up a, one of the Tiger Bots from time to time, but uh, yeah, he. one time I tried to start him and he hadn't got the switches on. So after about four attempts, I decided to look into the cockpit myself and showed him how to put the switches on. She started the next swing. These were all hand swung at the time. He was only there for the flip, you know, he wasn't, right. uh, he wasn't too pushed. There was good pay because uh, being married between myself and the good lady, we had about 10 pounds and 10 shillings a week. And for working seven days on the film, and it was a seven day week, we got 150 a day, so that was another £10.50, so that doubled my, my income. In fact, it more than because we paid no tax or anything on the, on the film money. And then because I had a license on the Gypsy Major, I was one of a select few to be retained at night after the filming finished and after everything was pushed into the hangar to do the daily inspections and to sign off the aircraft the next day. So we got uh, 22 and sixpence an hour, one pound two and six an hour for doing that work. So that's uh, tripled the income. So good times, good times. The following year, 66 and 67, it was the turn of uh, Darling Lily. And that's, that movie took two years, to, well, two years, two summers to make. Whereas the Blue Max was all done in 1965 and then it was put onto the screen at uh, the Ambassador Cinema in, in, in uh, 1966. But at that stage, Darling Lily had started and Darling Lily had, a, I suppose, a more complicated story and, and, and uh, a lot more actors involved. A few more aircraft came in, these Currywats, which were two... Uh, Downsized versions, two third size versions of the SC5A. So we'd more aircraft and it took a bit longer to make. But again, that took two years. And again, we had a. We, those of us that were seconded to us got a, a different pay scale this time. We got. Uh, we got £40. We got £20 a week for a 40 hour week. And then we got a pound an hour overtime for anything over the 20 hours. I was it over 40, 40 hours, over the 40 hours. Uh, and that brought in a few bob as well. So again, Darry Lily, and then over the next few years, there was Von Rich, Roven Brown, there was Zeppelin. Uh, was there another one that the, the name evades me at the moment? Well, the culmination of the films was uh, 1970, there was some snippets being made uh, for Zeppelin and I think a couple of other films as well that the, the now owner of the aircraft and that we're, we're involved in and um, 
we had the crash down on Western and the one in the one in August was in Wicklow Bay on Camden Jim Liddy flying an SC5A crashed into the helicopter that was filming them and that was for the film Zeppelin then we had the Blue Max and there were aircraft in that now they all had Sibby radios in them and our fellas helped out for small money they were paid and they got free steaks and onions and salmon on the film set and they met Ursula Andress and George Peppard and they had a great time and they flew Gormiston and Baldona but anyway that passed and we all invited to the premiere and big uh, big do in, in, in Dublin in the hotel and uh, that was the end of the Blue Max. I met Lindy out there gas bandages and then the cap turned around back with the Pete hanging down the back of his neck in an ordinary cap farmer's cap and he came in and he took Mr. Devilier up for a spin in his airplane and poor David stepped on the wrong place and then he put his foot right through the wing you know so that had to be mended before he got up for flight. He stayed there for a few days in town you know and then he was going away and I was kind of control officer so I was in the little control place that Erlingus was using and uh, in comes Lindy. I said, Morning, sir. Says he, uh, could you give me a course to stare to England? I said, Right off the bat, oh, 91 degrees. It's only 60 miles from. Oh, no, sir, that's too long a sea crossing. I'll go around by Larne. And I looked at the man and said, You just flown the Atlantic single engine. You won't. It's only 60 miles to Hollyhead. He went around by Larne, no, up the north. And he was missing for three days. You see, this was just the time when his child was murdered. At that time, the child was kidnapped and was murdered. And I think he was trying to avoid the press everywhere, you know, and he took off round up at the north and just disappeared for, for, uh, for a couple of days. Went to some small place under assumed name, I suppose, and hidden away. A nice guy, though. That was the only time I met him. He was a tremendous character. I had read in the paper that um, this man, Douglas Corrigan, had intended to fly to... Um, California from New York and had changed his mind decided to fly the Atlantic and he arrived at Maldonado. We were all at lunch when I happened to look out and I saw this airplane flying around and uh, I said, my God, that's the Curtis, Curtis Robin. I recognised the airplane. So we all scrambled out as quickly as we could and we were just up in time to see him land and he taxied in. And uh, the front of the airplane was in fact the whole airplane was covered in grease so we commented on that and uh, he said oh he said i just put a few handfuls of grease in all the rocker boxes <laughs> and of course it all spewed out the whole darn thing was covered with grease well the, those engines in those days had no cowling on the outside so it all the surplus fleshed out all over the windscreen it didn't matter anyway because the windscreen was covered in by his fuel tank, which filled up the whole cabin. And the only way he could see out was sideways through the windows. But that was commonplace in those days for long-range flying. The, the petrol tank filled the whole airplane. Well, Corrigan was a tank welder by trade, so he had made his own fuel tank, and there certainly wasn't room for a half-pint more fuel in that airplane. Every inch of the cabin was full of tank. 
Oh, before that, he had asked, is this California? <laughs> With his tongue in his cheek, of course. So we explained to him where he was. And then we found, stuck in the grease on the tailplane, Commandant Carroll found it, a page from a school atlas of the North Atlantic. <laughs> so much for his wishing to go to California, by coming by mistake. He'd had a map all right, and he'd found Baldono. That would tell this Corrigan for you. He was a right twister. <laughs> well, the connection of Baldono um, came in 1989 on, on St. Patrick's Day, when I had the good fortune to fly Douglas Corrigan, which probably doesn't mean anything to, to Douglas Corrigan, but Douglas Wrongway Corrigan. He uh, actually landed here on St. Patrick's Day, 1938. He wanted to try to fly, the first man to fly solo um, west to east, but he was always being turned down by the Federal Aviation Administration in America. And uh, he, despite, he always maintained that he had made a mistake and turned the wrong way. And instead of flying to San Francisco, he flew to Dublin and landed in Baldona yeah. on the, the, the 17th of March. I did question him and ask him if, come on, you know, yeah. he has to maintain that. He says, oh, oh, I am. And I think he probably had to because yeah. if he didn't, he would have been had up for um, lying to the federal authorities or, yeah. or something like that. We would have spent a good few, you know, weeks and months preparing for the um, Easter ceremonies. Um, the Air Corps had a huge role to play in terms of most of the Air Corps aircraft would have been involved in fly pasts on O'Connell Street um, for that day. So prior to the fly pass, we would have had a number of preparations. We would have had briefings. We had, you know, maps to prepare. We would have had a lot of interaction with Dublin Air Traffic Control and with the Irish Aviation Authority in terms of planning how this operation was going to take place. It was all going to take place inside of Dublin's controlled airspace. So. Um, we needed to plan with them where our aircraft was going to depart from, where it was going to hold, the order in which they were going to route into the city. Um, air traffic controllers then, would we would have had rosters to prepare to make sure we had adequate staff everywhere we needed them. Um, we identified very early on that we needed to have staff on the roof of the GPO to um, call in the fly paths as they were required, bearing in mind, you know, any safety considerations any any weather, any other aircraft that might come in. And we were also conscious of, you know, I suppose things that could be airborne like balloons or or pass or, you know, UAVs that somebody may have that so we were conscious that we needed a presence on the roof of the GPO so that they could visually see the aircraft as they came through and if necessary pass any traffic information to other aircraft. The Garda Air Support Unit would have planned to be airborne as well and it was important for from their point of view that they were able to access the city in between the fly paths. So all of that needed to be coordinated. Um, on the day I brought my grandmother's medals because um, I was very conscious that this was a day to remember all of the people um, who had gone before us, who had, I suppose, um, been instrumental in forming the state. So I just brought those because I thought that would be a nice thing to do. The centenary, I, I, well, the 1916. I, I, have, I would have loved to have got marching up O'Connell Street, but there was no place for the, for the chaplain there. Yeah. But I got to fly in the casa, oh, which, 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 which was great. And we 
blessed it from above. So it, uh, that was a, a memorable event too, of course. And, and it looked small, but it looked very impressive when you see Dublin from from above and you can see what's happening below and, and the, the whole layout and the crowds. Of course, you can't hear the noises, but uh, it's nice to look at the photograph of the, 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 the formation flying up O'Connell Street and you think that uh, there's the cars in your sitting in that machine yeah. on the occasion. Being in the place I am in here in Baldonnell, I just love like the aircraft I do like and, and the, the army lifestyle is great for, for shots in the sense that you have battle runs, you have, there's something changes every day, there's something new every day. Yeah. There's not a, there's not, a, there's, there's no day is the same. Like you don't know what you're going to be doing in the morning. Like like the same thing, I don't know what I'm going to be doing in the morning. What job will come up, what job will happen and, uh, and there haven't been some great positions if I'm out in the airfield working in the manholes or ducting or anything like that now and you have the aircraft flying beside you or flying up and down and doing the yeah. manoeuvres or training I always take the shots Well you, you take photographs of the aircraft which yes. is pretty good but do you, you also do the wildlife in your spare time around the camp Yes, there's loads of wildlife around the camp, it's great Yeah, I do love the, between the aircraft and, and, the, and the boards <laughs> I'll be kept busy enough it's hawks, kestrels here, yeah. all natural, you have the hares with the natural planes you have out there, you have all the you know, grass planes, not airplanes, but yeah. grass planes, you have all the, the, the Irish hares and the buzzards and the hawks and the kestrels. So there's plenty of plenty of activity and you have some strangers come in as well too. You have some you know, Maryland's or anything yeah. like that or you know, pelicans or anything like this. You have some strange birds fly by or eagle, sea eagle come by one day, just just didn't happen to get that photograph but he was there. And then I also remember coming to air shows here in Baldano. So I would have been at, <clears throat> I, I don't know how many of them over the years I would have been at, but certainly the, one of the ones that stands to mind is the 75th anniversary in 97. I really remember that air show. And I remember going home in the car that evening and my dad explained to me, so what age would I have been? Uh, 11. And my dad telling me about the cadets and kind of how you would become a pilot. I remember seeing mm. the Silver Swallows and being obviously very impressed, yeah. um, as I think a lot of people were at the time. And I think it was kind of those little things that planted the seeds. We would have flown then as part of the Silver Swallows then, uh, the Galway Air Show was there. Uh, and it was, there was air shows happening, I suppose, in Baldonnell then as well. 2022 will be 25 years since the Silver Swallows were over in uh, Fairford and got the, won the trophy over there. Uh, I would like to send PC9 team back to Fairford at that time for that uh, 25th anniversary. For more information on the Irish Air Corps, check out our social media channels and our website, military.ie. The Irish Defence Force podcast will be back soon with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.